All right. Uh, Reached around a minute ago to uh, to put my little mic pack on on the back, and I got a back cramp, which I think means I'm really young and healthy and fit. <laughs> well, that's exciting. Um, good morning. Buenos dias. It's the first Sunday of the month, so we have our Spanish ministry is joining us uh, for worship this morning. We're grateful to have them. Excited to have Poncho on board. Um, normally, when when that's the case, I try and get all my scriptures uh, up on the PowerPoint bilingually. Uh, but my PowerPoint died this morning. My desk and the in the projector, so it won't be up there. But we'll try and. Kind of work through this a little bit. I'll try and do a couple things in Spanish as we go, and then I'll look at Poncho, and he'll either give me a thumbs up or a ooh, keep studying, buddy, uh, as we go. Uh, with grace and compassion, as always. You know, nothing like a graceful thumbs down. Um, but we're, we're finishing last week's sermon that, that we got into, and we're in this series where we're talking about Jesus and how we can have confidence that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, that he did the things the Bible said that he did, and, and that we, as a result, can have faith to form and shape our lives around being followers and disciples of this man who lived 2,000 years ago. And so if you haven't been here, I'd encourage you to go back and really look into some of the lessons we've been doing here that talk about how we can be confident of the historical nature of the Gospels. And they are these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and then Acts follows and tells the story of the early church. And then Paul, who's in Acts, is writing all kinds of letters that fill the New Testament afterwards. And they're all these different people from different perspectives, using different sources. And, and one of the ways that historians evaluate content to, to measure if it's historically accurate or not, and we talked about this several weeks ago, is, is the question, is it embarrassing to the authors? And this is one of my favorite tests of historical uh, of strength in, in manuscripts is, is it embarrassing to the people who created the text? Uh, because people who are writing a story about themselves don't make up embarrassing facts. They will often make things up that make them look better, smarter, wiser, stronger, but you don't make up a story uh, about how you did something really embarrassing and stick it in a book that you want to be read for all time. And, and one of the things that, for me, adds so much to the gospel record is that the apostles are doing embarrassing things all the time. And if it's me, and I did the things that Peter did, sink in water, and if I was them and, and woke Jesus up in a panic, in a storm, and, and over and over again, Jesus is saying to me, why don't you understand the things I'm teaching you? Why don't you have enough faith to do the things I'm calling you to do? I would leave those details out. But the fact that they put them in gives us confidence that they're telling us the embarrassing parts of the story because they happened. And it gives us confidence in so much of what's going on in the Gospels. And so when we look at these stories, and we're kind of going, man, these guys were doing really embarrassing stuff a long time ago. But partway through the stories, they start figuring things out, doing things better and smarter. And they start having courage where they used to be terrified. And they start having wisdom where they used to only have foolishness. And they start going out and preaching to people that they used to really dislike. And over and over again, what we have to ask is, why in the world would these people change that dramatically? 
What took them from being a, a fisherman and a tax collector and a zealot and a disciple of John the Baptist, and where they were at the beginning of the Gospels, so all of a sudden they drop all of that, and they start following this Jewish rabbi around the countryside. And they leave their careers, and they leave their hometowns, and they leave their families, and you have to ask, what made them willing to change all of these things about their lives? If you'd asked Peter all growing up, hey, what are you going to be when you grow older? He would have said, I'm going to be a fisherman like my dad and like his dad before him. And all of a sudden, Peter's walking around the countryside, and you're going, Peter, what are you doing? And he's like, I was going to be a fisherman, but this guy said to follow him and fish for people. I'm doing that now. And you go, well, Peter, Peter, what changed? Well, this Jesus showed up, and he called him. And we get to the end of the Gospels, and, and, and again, this is review from last week, but it really sets up where we're going today. And you get to the end of the Gospels, and Jesus is arrested, uh, by one apostle who betrays him, ten of them abandon him, and one denies him. And as he's being crucified, you get the idea that they have completely abandoned him and failed him. By the time that he is, is crucified and laid in the tomb, they're hiding up in an upper room, fearful, faithless, filled with doubt, confused. They're ter- they, they're, they've completely forgotten everything that he told them, that this was going to happen, and then he would be resurrected on the third day. They forgot all of it, and they're huddled in fear in a room together, wondering what's going to happen next. Two of them, even a couple days later, leave the city, and they're just trying to figure out how to make sense of everything that's happened, and Jesus appears to them on the road to Emmaus, and he looks different. They, they, for whatever reason, don't recognize him, and he says, hey, what's going on? And they say, well, we thought we found the Messiah. But in the last couple of days, it's been clear that that wasn't the case. What's clear to us now is, is nothing. We don't understand anything. And then Jesus, in the form that they don't recognize, begins explaining to them from the Scriptures everything that happened and why it had to take place. And when he breaks bread, they recognize him, and suddenly everything changes. Changes. And Jesus appears to Mary and the other women uh, outside of the empty tomb. And they go to the apostles and they tell them what they've seen and everything starts to change. Because if Jesus doesn't stay dead, nothing stays the same. Everything changes. And so they go from being this huddled, terrified group in the upper room to being a group that's still in the upper room, but now they've got faith. Now they've got excitement and anticipation. Now they have hope. Things have dramatically changed. And yet, when we left off last week, they're still huddled in the upper room with enthusiasm and excitement and anticipation, but they're waiting. They're worshiping and making leadership decisions, but they're doing so in the space of the already convinced, which is where we are today, right? We're in a room right now that is largely made up of the already convinced that Jesus is who He says He is, and that it means something for our lives. I don't have to convince all of you that Jesus Christ was crucified and resurrected. You've already arrived at that conclusion. We're hanging out in the room of the already convinced. It's easy to be in the rooms of the already convinced because you guys believe what I believe and hold yourself to the standards that I hold myself to, and we're, we're brothers and sisters and family in that way. And that's where the apostles are uh, at the beginning of the book of, of Acts. And that's where we're picking up this morning. And so if you've got your Bibles, you can turn over to Acts chapter 2, where we're going to be spending some time in the text, which I believe is uh, El Libro de Hechos. 
uh, yeah, hi, here we go. That's where we're getting before. Hechos dos, how do you say chapter? Yeah. Come se dice chapter en español? There you go, Bill. What is it? Capitolo? All right. There we go, dos. Dos. So in the book of Hechos, starting in verse 1, we're going through verse 21. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And so this is Pentecost. This is the biggest feast that Jerusalem has had since Passover. And if you remember Passover, that's where Jesus was arrested, taken and had a fake, a fake trial, trumped up charges. A crowd called for him to be crucified and his apostles abandoned him. They were terrified. They ended up huddled in the room where they're hiding now except now this crowd has come back, the same crowd that they were terrified of in the past, but this time they're going to behave very, very differently. So when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, this is a spiritual thing that is visible to them. They saw what looked like fire sweeping through the room and landing on each of them. And as they are each filled with these, the Spirit that looks like fire coming upon them, which I've never had swirling flames in the room where I've been sitting in. I would imagine this to be initially terrifying. And this is a group that is prone to being afraid, but in this moment, they are not struck by fear. They are filled with the Spirit, and they now can speak in all kinds of languages. They were staying in Jerusalem. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and all the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. People all over the world have gathered here, and they hear this commotion take place. You see, the apostles saw the fire, but the crowd hears the, the disturbance. And they all start to gather because there's something going on. And it's a, a group of people that are from Galilee and if you know anything about Galilee, and most of us don't, what you need to know is that Galileans are not like well-respected as brilliant scholars. Thank you. Easy. Jesus, they're okay. They're not really respected. They're kind of the backwoods of Israel. And so they show up and they're like, what are these Galileans doing speaking in all the languages of the earth? There's no way they know these. And they're all confused. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. When Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, 
Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Which is just funny. It is. So they're not drunk. It's too early in the morning to be drunk. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he says, here's what is happening in your sight and in your hearing right now. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Billows of smoke, the sun will be turned to darkness and the blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then he goes on and he preaches a message where he's telling them and explaining to them. them in this moment in the languages of all the people that are sitting there listening. And it's not just Peter. All of those who are in the upper room are now filled with the Spirit and are preaching in all the languages of the people and explaining this to them. It's the same crowd that when they arrested Jesus, this group was terrified and went and hid as fast as they could. This is the same crowd that chanted crucify him when Jesus was put on trial. And yet this time the apostles aren't running terrified. This time the apostles are not confused. This time the apostles aren't, aren't saying, listen, I, we don't know what we're going to do next because this Jesus got crucified. Everything has changed. Why? Because not only have they seen the resurrected Jesus, not only have they watched as he ascended into heaven to be with the Father, but they are now filled with the Spirit. And the Spirit has called them and moved them with great power and boldness out of the house that they were hiding in. And so they went from worshiping among the already convinced to now evangelizing to those who, know, who do not yet believe. Instead of being terrified of the crowd, they're boldly telling the crowd, you need to hear this because you're wrong and we're right and we can prove it. They're not silent anymore. They're preaching in every language. This is an unbelievable and dramatic transformation that they've experienced. What changed? They received the Holy Spirit. The passage that Dennis read for us earlier, Jesus is talking to the apostles and he's telling them, listen, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be arrested and put on trial and crucified and I'm going to go where the Father is and you can't go where I'm going. And they're really confused by this and they're really upset. And any of us would be too if someone that we loved and cared about said, listen, I'm leaving and you can't go with me. Listen, I'm going away and I'm going to die and you're going to be left without me. If someone told us that, we'd be stricken with grief. We'd be sad. And Jesus tells the apostles, don't be sad that I'm telling you this. And here's why. It's good for me to leave. It's good for me to leave. Because if I leave, then the Spirit can come. And if the Spirit comes, if the Helper comes and lives inside of you, then you're going to be able to do even greater things than I do. You're going to do even greater things than you've seen me do. Now, they've seen him heal the sick. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen him feed thousands. 
And Jesus says, listen, you need me to leave so that the Spirit can come because that's the real show. And we forget this today. We take this completely for granted today. Or we've just never learned it, perhaps. Because the thing is, is that I think if I ask most of you, uh, would our world be better today if Jesus were here in the flesh? Our answer would be, yeah, absolutely our world would be better if Jesus were here in the flesh. Except that Jesus says, no, it isn't. It's better for me in my flesh, and he still has flesh with the Father where he is preparing a place for us. It's better for him to be there. Why? So we can have the Spirit so that we can be transformed in the way that the apostles were transformed by the Spirit coming into them and giving them power and boldness and passion and the ability to do things they didn't think they could do and say things they didn't know previously to say. And they begin telling the whole world that's, that's come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost what they need to know about who God is and what He's done through His Son, Jesus Christ. They're not afraid anymore. Things have changed. And if you ask the question, what changed, they received the Spirit. And so they now are no longer afraid of people who could kill them. They used to be terrified. They were hiding in the upper room. But they now are no longer afraid of people who can kill their bodies. In fact, over and over again in the book of Acts, you see someone say, listen, if you don't stop, we're going to kill you. And they say, go ahead. Didn't you see the person that's our leader? We don't stay dead. He got out of the grave, and we do too. We now believe that not only is Jesus resurrected, but we can become resurrected. So you don't have any power over me anymore, Rome. You don't have any power over me anymore, uh, Sanhedrin, Pharisees. Kill us. Jesus gives us eternal life. Take away anything you want. Jesus gives us more. And they have courage where they used to have fear. Boldness, where they used to be shy. Wisdom and knowledge, where they used to have confusion and misunderstanding. They have been completely transformed by the power of the Spirit dwelling within them. When the Spirit shows up and starts to touch your life, you immediately are given gifts that allow you to do things that you couldn't do without the Spirit giving you that ability. The Bible, Paul talks about the spiritual gifts that we receive. And every one of us is given different gifts that we use for the building up of the body. The Spirit comes in us and begins producing fruit. Paul tells us that the fruit that the Spirit gives us is really rooted in the character traits of God, that if God's Spirit is in us, we begin to be transformed and shaped to looking more like the character of God. Love, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, that, that the Spirit begins producing those character traits in us in ever-increasing amounts. You cannot have the Holy Spirit in your life and remain unchanged. And so if you're the same person today that you were before you were placed in Jesus Christ, you've got a problem. You're missing something. You're missing something. And even in the midst of the transformation that they experience in the upper room and at Pentecost as they begin proclaiming with, with courage what's going on, God wasn't done changing them yet. There's still another transformation that is to come, and it's a story that, that takes place throughout many pages in the book of, of Hechos, in the book of Acts. And I want to pick up in, uh, in Hechos uh, Capitula. Uh, 
capítulo. Ah, Hechos capítulo 11. Let's see. If that, if that gets you to Acts chapter 11, we're in good shape. <laughs> if it gets you somewhere else, go where the Spirit guides you. Okay. So in Acts chapter 11, Peter has been to Cornelius' house. And if, if you've been reading the pages between where we were and where we are now, one of the things you know is that Saul has become uh, someone who is starting to proclaim the gospel to Gentiles. We know that Peter has received a vision uh, while in the hour of prayer, he receives a vision. He receives it three times, and the vision is uh, that he should... Well, that's my PowerPoint. Well, there we go. That's amazing. Um, I don't know why that surprised me so much. The words are on the screen, so follow along. Peter receives a vision three times, and in the vision, he actually understands that it's God that's giving him the command to eat unclean animals. And he says, no, God, I wouldn't do that. And God says, no, I'm telling you to do that. He says, no, God, I won't. God is instructing him in this vision to begin thinking about unclean things in clean and welcomed ways, that Gentiles might be able to be included, that the, the barriers between what is God's and what is not God's is shifting. And Peter says, no, thanks, God, I'm not going to go that way. I'm not going to do that kind of stuff. And he gets out of this vision, and suddenly a servant has come from Cornelius, a Roman centurion, a Gentile, and the servant says, I was sent when my master received a vision from God to come to you and ask you to come preach to him. And in this moment, Peter says, well, I don't know what this is all about, but I'm going to go with you. He ends up, when he gets there, he's preaching. The Spirit comes into Cornelius and his household, and Peter says, well, if you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you as Roman soldiers and family members, I think you need to be baptized because that's how it's supposed to happen. You're baptized into Christ and the Spirit comes into you, and if it's out of order, we've got to get this. We've got to catch up with what God's doing here. So Cornelius and his entire household are baptized. Now, Peter comes back to, uh, to the apostles, and when Peter shows up with the apostles, one thing you need to know, they're going to have a big meeting. In fact, anytime there's a big meeting in Acts, there's pretty much one cause for the big meeting in Jerusalem. They have big meetings of the apostles in Jerusalem anytime God shows up and, and has extended his family to someone that they thought should be outside of the family. Anytime an outsider becomes an insider, there's a big apostles meeting in Jerusalem. This is one of those meetings. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? You ate with them? They're not upset that they're being treated as Christians. They're upset that Peter's eating with them. And like Bill talked about in the communion talk this morning, who you eat with is who you accept and welcome. And they're looking at Peter and saying, Peter, listen, we know you're a good guy, and you wouldn't do something like this, would you? You wouldn't eat with Romans like them. You wouldn't eat with Gentiles like them. We're Jews, and we hang out with Jews, and if you're a good Jew, and we know that you are, tell us you didn't go eat with them. Peter says, let me start at the beginning. So Peter tells them the whole story. As I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. And I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. And then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. 
And the voice spoke from heaven a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. And the Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he'd seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. And then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? There's an instruction there in what Peter's saying too. God's Spirit was in Cornelius, who was I to stand in God's way of his inclusion in God's family? And the instruction there is, and so you who now question me about whether or not I ate with Romans, whether I ate with Gentiles, who are you to stand in God's way if God wants them to be his children, if God wants them to be part of this family? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And the fourth transformation is finally taking full root in the community of believers. You see, they went from being tax collectors and fishermen to being followers of the rabbi, and things changed for them. And then when they saw that Jesus was resurrected and he ascended to to heaven to be with the Father, things change for them. And they go from being a fearful, huddled mass in the community of, of the already convinced to being this group that's willing to proclaim the gospel to anyone and everyone who's willing to listen. They're not afraid anymore. And they're not in the upper room. They're now going to all who will listen. Well, not all, actually. They're going to the other Jews. They're going to the people who are already waiting for Messiah, and they're just saying, you've been waiting for the Jewish Messiah. This is him. He's not what we expected, but this is him. And they have this problem with the widows and the caring and feeding of the widows because some of the people that are serving food only like serving the ones who act more Jewishly, and others only like serving and taking care of the ones who act more uh, Greek. And these are all Jewish women, and some of them are not getting their food because they don't behave the way that we think they ought to. There's bias in the church. And they have to bring up some deacons and servants who begin dealing with the biases in the church and make sure that everyone is provided for. But this is just the bias that exists between Jews who behave like other people. Philip goes out and converts an Ethiopian eunuch, and everyone's kind of going, boy, that's a surprise. Eunuchs can't go into the inner part of the temple, but now the Spirit of God can go into eunuchs? God is sure sneaking up on us. And then he goes to Samaritans in a Samaritan village, and he preaches the gospel there, and they begin to believe in Jesus. And as soon as they receive the message, these Samaritans, the apostles in Jerusalem have a meeting, and they're like, we need an exploratory committee to figure out what's going on with the Samaritans who think they can be one of us. And all of a sudden, Paul's preaching to Gentiles, and they're getting baptized and becoming God's children without getting circumcised. And Peter's eating with Romans. And what's going on here? You're telling me that this Jesus thing is for everybody? Yeah, that's right. 
And one of the most incredible transformations that happens in the apostles is they go from disliking everyone who's not Jewish to welcoming all of them into the body of Jesus Christ. And if you take these, these, these apostles and these disciples at the end of Acts, and if you could put them in a time machine and take them back to the versions of themselves at the beginning of the Gospels when they were out fishing and when they and when they were collecting taxes, and you said, hey, I want you to see what God's got in store for you. This is what he's going to transform you into. Those fishermen would look at their future selves and say, there is no way I'm going to ever look like that. There is no way that I'll have the confidence to preach that way. There is no way that I will welcome those people into the kingdom of God. There is no way I'm leaving these nets right here. I wouldn't do all those things if God walked up and told me to. Which it turns out is what happened. And is the only possible explanation of how those guys went from their fishing nets to welcoming in all the nations of the world to become baptized believers of Jesus Christ filled with the Spirit and part of this one diverse, unified family at the end of Acts. Any single one of those transformations, I can't figure out what would explain it if it's not for Jesus living in this world, fitting into their lives and saying, listen, it's time for you to start changing. For the Spirit coming into them and saying, it's time for you to get courageous and tell the world what they need to know. If it wasn't for the Father giving Peter a vision, the Spirit coming into Cornelius, and Jesus showing up to, to Saul on the road and saying, it's time for this kingdom to get a lot more multiracial, a lot bigger than just the Jews. If it's not for all of that happening, I can't explain one of these changes, let alone all four. And here's the thing that you need to know. Not only did God work those transformations in those people's lives, but he wants to work those transformations in your life. Because there's people who have decided enough about Jesus that they're willing to start taking a few steps down the road and see what this guy's all about, but they haven't yet become convinced that the resurrection changes everything for them. And there's people who have said, I believe in, in Jesus resurrected and ascended to be with the Father. I believe in that. But you're still just sitting in the wombs of the already convinced. You're not living like people that are filled with the passion that comes from having the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Because the apostles in the upper room are saved people that believe in the resurrection, but they're not the people that are preaching to anyone who will listen at Pentecost. And there's some of us who, who, who even are bold and courageous, and we love sharing our faith with the people that we already like, but we're struggling to welcome the people that we don't already like. And that's the fourth transformation that the Spirit and the Father and the Son are guiding us towards is this inclusion and welcome to the people in the world that we kind of think, yeah, you're an outsider. And Jesus says, yeah, I died for them too. Preach to them the Word. And if we preach the Word to them and they're receiving the Spirit, then we've got to ask the question the apostles were asking, which is, well, who's going to keep you from being part of us? And it's when we begin walking down those paths and living like the apostles live and being willing to be shaped and transformed in the way they were willing to be shaped and transformed that God's got so much in store for us. 
But so often we're just comfortable in the room we're already in. And if there's some part of this transformation that God is calling you to and you're reluctant to step forward in faith, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? What are you worried about? You worried that God won't be faithful to take care of you along the journey? Because there's no blessing that He can't give you more than the world can take away. There is no amount of life that can be removed from you that He cannot give to you for eternity. There is nothing that this world can take from us that He can't give us back tenfold. If you've not received the blessings of the transformation that the Bible promises us, I don't know what you're waiting for. But if you want to receive those and respond to that call today, come forward as we stand and sing. Let the King of my heart be